Hello and welcome to Captivated Audience. My name is Marie Lundbein and today joined as always by Sam Sheen. Today's podcast, we are pleased to introduce you to James Nurse. Hi James, how are you doing? Hey, yeah, very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you work and what you're based in? Yeah, sure, definitely. I work for uh, Fintrail, so I work on the consultancy team. We uh, support various different financial institutions or fintechs with um, their kind of regulatory needs or prevent financial crime across interesting things. We're based in London, um, or personally based in London, so I'm currently sitting in sunny Camden Town. Lovely. A quick question. Could you give us a little bit of your professional background as well? I spent around five years um, in the gambling sector for all my sins, doing different kind of first line and second line roles, but then found my way and uh, saw the light and moved into kind of financial services. So I worked for a small fintech challenger bank for around two, three years um, before moving into a money transfer company and then obviously moved to Fintrail. So um, yeah, got a bit of a colourful background from that sense. I would say that's a very good background in order to be at FinTrail as well, because you do a lot of work within the fintech community, of course. And I do know that you do a lot of really great studies as well. And you release a lot of good papers with solid information. I'm really thinking about one in particular, which is in relations to social media and money muling. We had Ketty Clorius from Danske Bank uh, recently on our podcast, and he talked about the phenomenon of money muling in Denmark. Can you give us a little bit of a background on that project on the social media and money muling? We've done a few pieces on money muling before, but the more most recent part we've kind of split into two pieces. So the first of which you may have read already, but it's basically highlighting, again, some of those main key things about why we really care about money muling, but more importantly, the actual role of social media within that piece, because we very often actually talk about money muling as an overall piece, and this is how it works, this is how people get recruited, but we don't always necessarily acknowledge the actual role some of these social media platforms play in this particular piece. And what kind of role do they actually play? Financial services are often viewed as they get a lot of bad rep about how they are the facilitators of these kind of kind of illicit flows for particular like any money milling exercises. But actually, social media platforms can often be the facilitators in a different way as well. They operate as um, allowing the facilitation of um, onboarding and recruiting, of, but also acting as the areas, the way they can promote the scams as well, that actually the, where the illicit flows, these money mulers may actually receive that money from as well. So it's kind of those two-pronged attack on that sense. So basically this um, report is there to highlight that again and actually put the spotlight on the social media companies themselves. And it's all about keeping up appearances, right? It's like having that really glitz or that really that you know, hype presence on, on the social media accounts, right? Yeah, exactly. Obviously, a lot of these criminals utilize these tools and they are certainly use the people that are vulnerable to these type of things. And they use the glitz and glamour, as you say, to kind of uh, get these vulnerable people to unknowingly, but knowingly to do what they, they need. James, we, there's an interesting case we just finished recording for a podcast, and you've probably heard it. It's the Bayrob case. Oh, and yeah. one of the interesting tactics they use in recruiting money mules in the U.S. is they create these companies, and then they create these fictitious advertisements across social media looking for international transfer agents. And it's quite incredible when you look at the advertisements, how realistic they seem. Is that the sort of stuff you also looked at? Yeah, I guess it's a variety of things. People often seem to think that people are just uh, being poached and, and saying, uh, 
get cash quick, which is obviously part of it. But what they don't always realize is there's actually some of these really kind of elaborate things like job advertisements that come hand in hand with this. So it's not just the we can give you cash quickly all you have to do is this they create these front jobs and things like that to make it more elaborate and so they can move money like that as well yeah yeah and in that case what was really interesting was they would try and recruit people with this fake social media advertisement and they would put a different job in and they would tell them they hadn't got that job but they had this other great job that was available and would they have that instead so there seems to be a social engineering component to this Definitely. And, and this is where those social media platforms obviously come really key in, in that focal point. And when we're talking about being the facilitators of this particular kind of money mulling and, and, and recruitment process, this is where they really are the focal point. And yeah, definitely really interesting of how they use those job advertisements to kind of push those forward. And that's quite interesting because one of these recruitments is actually making you work from home. You can make hundreds per week. You don't have to have any type of qualifications in order to get that kind of job, which kind of ties it nicely into this situation we are currently in, right? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a good opportunity for obviously people to, again, kind of pick on these vulnerabilities of the the situations people find themselves in. And uh, we're certainly seeing that spike in those additional kind of ones that Sam has mentioned in that case study that we've been focusing on. So that was the first part. It came out in March. It's been a busy day for you guys today at FinTrail because you released the second half today as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what the second part of this study focuses on? So the first part obviously focused on some of the basics, those kind of areas and how they can be utilized. Whereas the um, second part is actually looking at specifically some of those um, key indicators of what you can look out for to actually adopt, to, to kind of think about when you're kind of trying to pick up these things. So it kind of splits it into what we call the, um, the visuals and also the language use. So looking at those, some of those key pieces of what are those visuals that you should be looking out for to actually uh, spot those kind of um, advertisements. But then what is the language actually used in it as well? Because the links between the two are quite key and there's always some common denominators within both of those that can identify them. Money, cash, cash quick, those kind of interesting phrases, yes. Marie mentioned how busy FinTrail has been. We're recording this on the 16th of April. Today, you've also released your report entitled Keep Calm and Keep Planning, which is a collaborative paper on pandemic planning for FinCrime. And one of your observations is about the four stages that companies seem to be going through. You call them heroic, honeymoon, disillusionment, and restoration. Those really ring true in terms of some of the conversations we've had on this podcast. Tell us a bit more about your findings around the disillusionment phase and what measures can be used possibly to mitigate the risks around that. So I guess for anyone who's not aware of how that works, obviously, if we look at the current landscape, what we're looking ourselves in, you've, I guess, released some sort of business continuity plan, maybe for thin crime, maybe for the wider business, but hopefully for the a focus on thin crime as well. So you go into it being optimistic and you're heroic and you think it's going to be successful. But now, obviously, you're cemented, you think everything's working well, and you kind of are in that disillusionist phase. And it's a really good opportunity to kind of actually re- reassess that and whether everything's working working effectively or not. So rather than actually just continuing to be, I guess, disillusioned as it were, um, it's a really good opportunity to kind of reflect back and and reset. One of our advices throughout the paper is to treat this process as as a dynamic cycle rather than just a static linear motion. You don't just 
do your, your contingency plan and release it and that's it done. It's actually, you do your contingency plan, you plan and plan and plan and you, you review it and you make sure you have those retrospectives to see whether it's working effectively. In that report that was released today on, on Keep Calm and, and Keep Planning, you list some of the best practices when it comes down to assessing the effectiveness of technology. As an internal auditor, those words, I just love them, effectiveness, assessing, risk, and technology. Can you explain a couple of these? The way we were looking at this from a financial crime perspective, as you're looking at kind of pandemic planning, is splitting things into who are the people that are important, who are the pro- what are the processes, but also, equally as important, what are those technologies? So in this scenario, we're thinking it's a really good opportunity to think how are your technologies and systems working effectively in this process? Obviously, having a good effectiveness process for this is really important to maintain that kind of your program and ensure it is working effectively and um, efficiently. We're looking at making sure you have that pure list of those systems and vendors. They may not always be in-house. They may be outsourced as well. And understanding who the owners are of those individual things are really important as well. And obviously, if they go wrong, you'll know who to escalate them for because you know who that person actually owns them as well. And making sure you have that IT resource as well to actually manage that process. Those are really solid tips. Thank you so much, James. And just a, a quick shout out then to the GDPR people that might be listening in as well, because there might be a list already made by the GDPR people. So collaborate or at least communicate. Good points. What I really liked in this new paper is the balance I see between people and technology. And it's something that Greg Volorczyk talked about when he was on the podcast. And you identify something in this report we've not really seen or heard about, and that's really the importance of decision forums, such as risk committees, that governance, you know, the distribution of management information to senior stakeholders. Can you tell us a little bit more about that finding? Especially from Fintra, we're always ones to say technology is really important. Let's be innovative and make sure we rely on these new control mechanisms to ensure our um, big framework is working great. But actually, some of the more traditional controls we rely on are really important in this current state we see ourselves in. Things like that MI, management information, is vitally important to be able to actually escalate those things in this scenario. Because ultimately, if you don't have no escalation process to actually show them things are working good or things are working bad, um, how can you actually kind of make those decisions? But then actually having that forum, I think at the moment where everyone's working remotely, um, it would be easy just to say, let's not have that risk committee. Let's postpone it. We're going to be back into the office in three weeks time. But actually, no, it's vitally important you continue to have these forums because these are the mechanisms where you can make those decisions and identify those problems. James, your report also canvases regulatory approaches or communication around expectations on the use of technology. What's your take overall in terms of the sentiment that's being expressed? Yeah, it's interesting. I guess the regulators are actually adapting in the same way as a lot of financial institutions do as well. So they obviously have their own contingency plan and bring in their own opinion. And I think it's probably only in the last couple of weeks where they're actually beginning to be a bit more give more useful kind of tips and about their approach. Obviously, FATF's a really good example. They're obviously talking about how their recommendations are have been designed to be flexible uh, so that people can actually enforce them in these kind of environments. And obviously, we all talk about risk-based approach and everyone or doesn't love a risk-based approach or do like to love the risk-based approach. I am, a, I am a lover and a believer, as it were. But obviously, now is a really good a time to actually rely on that risk-based approach that you actually incorporate in your policies and controls. So the report that came out today is just 15 pages long. 
It's really well written. It's easy to understand. It's colorful. It has pictures in it as well. So it eases it up. The content of the report is absolutely brilliant. Where can people find the report? Just the 15 pages long, but yeah, hopefully people find it useful. So we've, we've already distributed within the FinTech Thin Crime Exchange community because obviously they played a pivotal point in bringing it together. But we've also um, put it on the FinTrail website so you can find it on the Insights page on the FinTrail website. Thank you so much, James. And on behalf of both Marie and myself, always a pleasure chatting with the folks from FinTrail. Love to speak to you. And if you would like to take part in one of our future podcasts, or if you've got some ideas or suggestions, feel free to reach out to us on the podcast website, captivatedaudience.eu, or just feel free to reach out to us on LinkedIn. Until our next podcast, thanks for listening and stay safe. <laughs>